Good morning. Well, it's good to be back with you guys. I am Andrew Barber. I teach at the Stony Brook School um, in Stony Brook. Uh, I'm an English teacher over there. I have some Stony Brook students who are here today, so I can't. And I just preached about gossip last week at the school, so I can't use them as examples. So, no, glad to be back with you guys. Uh, if you could flip with me, if you want to have your Bibles out to Ephesians 6, that's where we're going to be looking at today. Now, as a brief setup, the book of Ephesians is a book about what it looks like to be united as a body of believers in Christ. If you read through the New Testament and you look at Paul and his goals and his priorities, one of his big missions is to unite the Jewish people, the Jewish Christians, with the Gentile believers. And you can see as you go through all his books, consistently he will mention this offering he's taking up from the Gentile churches. And part of the reason he was doing that it's because he wanted the Jewish Christians to see how, how serious the Gentiles were about their faith and that they were unified together. So Ephesians is this book to Gentile believers who haven't experienced uh, life in Christ, don't know what it's like, about what a whole and thriving community looks like. But in the back of our minds as we're reading Ephesians, and I'm sure as they were reading Ephesians as well, or listening to Ephesians as well, one of the things that you would have to be thinking is, why exactly is this so hard? Why is it so hard to do community well? Uh, and the question goes on today. You and I, many of us in this room, have at some point sat in a chair several thousand feet up in the air and flown through the sky. That's awesome. I can go on my laptop right now and open up an app and speak to my in-laws in the Middle East. Amazing. And marriage is still really hard, right? And singleness is still really hard. And community is hard. And a lot of us deal with addictions. And many of us struggle to do things the way we would like. We have relationships that we can't seem to fix. And whatever we try to do seems to make them worse. Mastery over the self feels next to impossible. And the question is, why is that? Why is it so hard to do that? Uh, I don't have to tell my kids how to eat food or any of those kinds of, well, you know, in a certain way. I don't have to tell my kids how to eat food, those kinds of things. It comes natural to us. Why is it that these kind of good community bonds, these good relationships that knit us together are so hard? And so at the end of Ephesians, Paul tells us. He says in Ephesians 6, verse starting in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Uh, let's pray together that God would bless this time with him. Father, I thank you for who you are. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for your word. May your word come forth. May our hearts be soft to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark mentioned the Nationals who just won the World Series. If you're a baseball fan or a sports fan, you also know that a massive scandal is being unveiled right now. And I've been thinking about it, and maybe we should have some conversations after. I think it might be the biggest American sports scandal outside of the Black Sox. So in the early 1900s, the White Sox threw a World Series. Uh, basically, the mafia paid them off, and they lost on purpose. 
And what's come out right now is the Astros, the Houston Astros, who won the World Series in 2017 and uh, went to Game 7 of the World Series this past year, a team that my dad loves very much, unfortunately. Uh, it turns out that as impressive and as amazing that they were, and I've watched many of their games, thought they were awesome, what's come out lately is that they had an elaborate cheating system. And what this system looked like is they had a camera somehow positioned in center field, and in Major League Baseball, all the screens, if you're at a Major League park, are on an eight-second delay. And they're on an eight-second delay because if the other team was watching the screen, they could see the signs the pet catcher was putting down, fastball, curveball, they could quickly yell out something, you know, whistle or something like that. The hitter would know it's a fastball, gear up, launch that thing. So all the TVs are supposed to be on an eight-second delay in a ballpark. However, what it looks like the Astros did is they set up some kind of camera in the outfield with a direct feed to a TV that they had hidden in this passageway in between the dugout and the clubhouse. And if it was a fastball, they did nothing. And if it was a changeup, they hit this trash can with a bat. And if it was a breaking ball, they hit it twice. And when you watch the games, you don't even notice because it's just ambient noise, right? But since they've revealed this, people have gone back and watched all the footage, and it's unbelievable. You can hear it pretty distinctly. Bang, bang, bang. And the hitter knows what is coming. And they, they switched it up to a whistle. If you go back to Game 5 of the World Series against the Dodgers, you can hear somebody whistling the da-da-da-da-da-da, and that means a fastball is coming. And they've been doing this for three years just cheating, right? And people, uh, uh, a pitcher named Hugh Darvish uh, just released this video where he got crushed by the Astros in the World Series for the Dodgers. And his stuff was great, and he's one of the elite pitchers. And he basically talked about how he, basically, he had like a breakdown after that. Like, what was wrong with my stuff? I had great stuff. They said I was tipping my pitches, which means I was revealing somehow what I was throwing, but I don't believe I was. And he went through this long, like, year. he got hate mail from Dodgers fans and all this. And he's just one of the guys, right, who's on the receiving end of this uh, rigorous and terrible cheating scheme, right? And uh, with the Astros, all these pitchers who went up and faced the Astros just thought that the hitter was the problem, right? The hitter is the guy I'm facing. But they weren't facing the hitter. They were facing an entire system built to destroy them. Well, I think as Christians, we frequently make the same mistake. We misunderstand what we're fighting against, and we fight in the incorrect way. And the scriptures say that we're locked into a kind of spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And I know what you're thinking right now, because I'm pro I would probably be thinking it, is spiritual warfare and the devil are not the most popular subjects in the West. We've worked really hard to quit speaking about those things. We're pretty embarrassed about them. I think it was in the late 90s or early 2000s, there was this group called the Jesus Seminar that was a bunch of scholars. And they literally sat around while each verse of the gospel was being read and threw out a certain color bead. And they had one bead for it definitely happened, one if maybe, one if probably not, one if definitely not. And they went through each verse, and it was really popular, you know, uh, they did it, made it a media event and threw out these beads. And you can imagine the ones that they threw the beads out for definitely didn't happen. We're always going to be the miraculous, the times with the demonic, the resurrection of Christ even. These are the things that, uh, since the Enlightenment, the West has been nervous about adapting. And Christianity, in a lot of circles, has tried to just excise these types completely and we see the fruit of that. A lot of those seminaries that do that are just dying. And on a personal level, I think conversation about spiritual warfare reminds me of kind of those crazy stories that I don't know what to do with, you know? 
They're kind of like, well, I saw a demon in my attic once. And you're like, ah. Um, and you don't know what to do with that. Uh, and I, I don't often think of it as a helpful explanatory tool. Like it feels like a cop-out sometimes from doing the hard work, right? Well, I think it's spiritual attack. It's like, well, you could just be really bad with money, right? Um, <laughs> so I see those things. And on the other hand, too, I'm, I'm skeptical of instant healing silver bullet kind of thing as well, right? Uh, I think there are a lot of people who spend their days looking for the silver bullet to fix their bodies and to get wealth and all those things and not God. Uh, and those people are particularly susceptible to the miraculous and to what we call prosperity gospel, right? Which is where somebody's like, hey, if you do enough good, God will give you a lot of physical blessings. And that's terrible and wrong and heresy, and they'll have to answer for saying that one day. So all of those things might disincline me to talk a lot about spiritual warfare and the spiritual realm, except it is all over the scriptures. It's just running through the whole thing. In fact, when you start reading, thinking about that, you're kind of amazed at how unaware you are that that's dominantly what's going on in the Gospels. When you read, Jesus is consistently facing off with these kind of cosmic powers. And so if we're honest with ourselves, we look at it, we've got we've to deal with that. We've got to think about it. And it's helpful because it's, it is true, I would think. So what we have to do when we face that is we have to, we have to deal with the fact that many of us are kind of functionally atheists or functionally materialists, right? We just wake up and go through our day. We don't pray very much. We don't see our world as enchanted. And this is me too. But we have to face the fact that we live in a really, in a significant universe. God has charged it with significance. There's more going on than what we can just see. Spiritual warfare is everywhere in the scriptures. And combat in the spiritual realm is at the core of what's going on. So maybe we've been reading and we wouldn't ever throw beads out, but like the Jesus seminar, we skip over certain parts or don't try to think about them and just get to the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of helpful-to-life wisdom, right? But today I want us to look pretty hard at what the spiritual realm looks like that the Scriptures talk about. And when I'm done, I'm just going to leave, and you can ask all your questions to Mark, and it'll be great. <laughs> I really wasn't planning on going here, but the more I said this passage, I'm like, I got no choice, Mark. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, so I wanted to do something a little different, a little more topical. Uh, the actual passage I picked out, I'm going to hold it till the very end and you'll see why. But at first I want to kind of paint a picture of what's going on in the Bible. And our three points today is basically because God is taking back the world, we need to face the true enemy. We need to proclaim Jesus' victory. And then we need to worship the true king. So those are the three things I want to talk about. So the first one, we need to face the true enemy. Let's start in the very beginning. Let's do it. Story time. So the whole story begins with God creating a good earth and good people in it. They're supposed to take care of God's planet, his creation. They represent him, Adam and Eve. And then Satan enters the picture, right? The deceiver. We don't get a lot about where he came from, any of that. But he comes in and he gives the great lie. You can be like God. You can have power without submitting to anyone is part of that lie. So there are two parts of it, right? You can be like God. No, we can't. And the second one is Adam and Eve believed that uh, listening to Satan meant they wouldn't have to submit to anyone when in fact they would be submitting to the dark powers in the world. Now, uh, 
hang with me here. We have evidence that this spiritual rebellion is not just a Satan thing, but that there were also kind of spiritual beings who rebel against God. We have this really bizarre little passage. You should look at it by yourself sometime and then ask Mark in Genesis 6. Uh, Genesis 6, right before the flood, where the scriptures say, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and took as their wives any they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and so afterward. And it's at this point God decides to flood the earth. And basically all we can take out of that is there's this weird moment where the spiritual beings in the world and humans are working together in a really negative way. We can see there's this kind of demonic host working with the people of God to rebel against him. Uh, so God's people rebel against him, Adam and Eve. And some people argue that as well, many of the spiritual powers rebel against God also. We have another. We're, gonna, we're just going to look at all the weird parts in the Bible today. Uh, we have another weird moment, Daniel 10. Daniel is praying, and he's praying to God. Uh, the Israelites are coming out of exile. They're going to Jerusalem, but not many of them are coming back, and he's nervous about it, and he's praying. And this divine messenger shows up, and the messenger first says, hey, I'm really sorry I was late. I was actually delayed by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and I'm going on my way to duke it out with the prince of Greece. And what we get this picture of is that there are these kind of territorial demonic forces and there's spiritual warfare going on all the time. And the picture in Daniel is Daniel prays this prayer and immediately there is basically spiritual warfare going on because of what he prayed. And he's sitting there thinking like, God's not even listening to me. Meanwhile, it is duking it out, right, up top. Uh, and so this idea that there are these territorial uh, demonic powers that we are contending with, it's an interesting one, and hang with me. The last passage I want to look at, just listen to this. This is Psalm 82. And this is what Psalm 82 says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, lowercase g, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you inherit all the nations. And the picture is God is amongst this, this divine council, and he's like, you guys were supposed to take care of people. You were supposed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, and you didn't. And you're going to pay for that, right? Now, you could argue God is dealing with kind of hypothetical gods, but what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.18, he says that consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. The food offered to idols is anything, or is the food offered to idols nothing? No, I imply what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And what Paul is saying is like, look, when people give sacrifices to these false gods, it's not nothing. It's going somewhere. They're these spiritual beings, Paul calls them demons, who are aligned against God. And people are actively worshiping them. So people aren't worshiping nothing. They're worshiping something. And so we see like the full picture of what's going on here. God creates the earth. He makes Adam and Eve. He sets them up. He has spiritual forces as well, dedicated to doing good. They turn against God. And so God decides, Abraham, I'm picking you. I'm starting a new nation. We're going to retake this place from the spiritual powers. And if this is true, if this is true of what's going on, think about the scope of Israel's narrative. 
What then is the most important thing for Israel? It's their faithfulness to God, their love of God, their decision to follow Him. But you could sum up the whole Old Testament with Israel going, dude, look, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Babylonians, fill in the blank, they're huge. They're such a big problem. And God basically responds with the prophets, no, you're the problem. <laughs> you're the problem. I, I can defeat the Philistines with like a shepherd boy. Watch, I'm pretty awesome. The issue here is your faithfulness to me. You think the enemy at the gates is the most important and threatening thing? There will always be enemies at the gates. I am the most powerful thing. The thing you need to be paying attention to is there are powers and there are forces out there that want to lead you away from me. That's what you should be concerned about. I think that a lot of us spend a lot of our time just thinking about results, the external signs of, um, of a successful life. And we tend to think, if I just had that thing, I'd have some peace of mind. And when we think that, I think we're maybe more inclined to view God this way. God has this secret will for my life, and maybe I can figure it out, right? What is God's will here? And you feel like you're like playing a guessing game all the time on what's God doing here, what's God doing with this. I run into students occasionally who really wrestle with that on like every decision, right? Uh, what college does God want me to go to? What you know, person does God want me to date? That kind of thing. And they're more, it feels like they're playing like a roulette game, right? Like, shh, does God want me to do it? I'm going to share an embarrassing story with you. I probably already shared it with Stony Brook people. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a crush on this girl. I wasn't sure if I should date her or not. And so I'm in South Carolina. It never snows in South Carolina, ever. Like, I, I saw more snow today than I ever saw in South Carolina. And the night before, it's supposed to be snow. This girl I'm interested in, and I'm like, all right, God, if you make a snow day tomorrow, I'll ask her out. Like, it's a sign. I got it. So the next morning, I wake up, and I'm so nervous, I refuse to look outside my window. And my mom calls out, hey, snow day. I'm like, yes. And then literally 10 seconds later, she's like, oh, no, no, read it wrong. No snow day. I'm like, what? Uh, so mean. I asked her out. She said no. All right. Um, but the point is, what do, you think God, what do you think God wanted from me in that situation? Do you think God wanted me to play the roulette all day? Or do you think God wanted me to seek out relational wisdom? Do you think God wanted me to just like, hey, if I see a guitar pick on the ground in the next 10 seconds, or do you think he wanted me to find a mentor who knew a thing or two about the Lord and who could lead me to making good relational decisions, right? I sometimes think if we think about the results and we're constantly worried of looking at the cultural warfare and signs and symbols, we might be tempted to play that roulette game as opposed to realizing that the real thing is God wants us to come to him and learn wisdom, and walk in his, in his path, right? To grow closer to God. So we have people uh, running around looking for God's will all the time when he tells us in 1 Thessalonians, you know what my will is? Literally says this. This is God's will. You ready? Here it is. Your sanctification. That's it. That's God's will, is that you grow closer to him. Oh, that's awesome. It's kind of freeing, Right? Micah says this, he's told you, oh man, what's good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And you feel like maybe if Israel was more interested in that than in the Philistines at the gate, things might have gone better for them. Israel needed to hear this, and we do too. Now, of course, results matter. The world matters. 
What we do in it matters. Politics matter. But none of those things are ultimate. The ultimate thing is this war to crush the dark forces in the world, and it's a battle fought on moral and spiritual battleground. And if we know that, then we know that this is the place you're going to get the strongest pushback. Ever wonder why it's just so hard to get on your knees and pray? There are probably a lot of things aligned against you doing that. Right? Ever wonder why the mornings, I mean, it sounds trite, but it's true. I mean, how many of you like feel like you get in the worst fights as you're going to church? It's ridiculous. I think it's like an American phenomenon. But I think there's something to that, right? We're called to live in enemy-occupied territory. And as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, one of the most important things for people to learn is that we're people who have an enemy. If we know our true enemy, we won't be surprised by the hitter knowing that the fastball is coming. So there's a lot at stake. And if we know our true enemy, I think that's going to be helpful. And it's going to keep us from wandering off and getting depressed about things that are not the ultimate thing. So that's first. We've got to know our true enemy. There are spiritual forces aligned against God's kingdom on earth. But the next thing is we have to proclaim Jesus' victory. So we go to the New Testament. Jesus shows up. The Son of God. And Jesus is proclaimed. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He's inaugurated. He's going to be the one, guys. You've been waiting. This is him. And what does he do? He doesn't jump up and run out to face the Romans. In fact, he doesn't seem to care very much about the Romans. It's almost like his whole attitude is like, oh, yeah, the, the, yeah guys, there's going to be tons of... Every generation will have a new the Romans. They're always going to be here. If I just rescue for the, you from the Romans, I'm just like the judges. I'm just like everybody else. I'm here to do something bigger than this, right? To the Romans, he just says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Don't worry about it. Now, the first thing he does is he marches off to face Satan. He's like, you guys don't know what the real problem is. I do. Let's go. And as we follow Jesus, what does he really get fired up against? We don't see any anger towards the Romans. He gets fired up against the Pharisees who represent everything that's gone wrong in Israel. They are against the establishment of God's kingdom. When the king, Jesus, shows up and says, hey, your problem's not political, your problem is your hearts, they're like, we're going to kill this guy. They care about the physical enemy, not the spiritual, and they've traded their spiritual inheritance for the desire to just be a strong nation. And Jesus fittingly calls them a brood of vipers, sons of hell, He's like, you know who you remind me of? You remind me of the deceiver. You remind me of my enemy. And when Peter says, hey, Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't do it. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. That's a crazy line. What is he saying? He's like, right now, you are aligned with Satan's. Satan's trying to keep me off that cross. That's where I'm going to win this victory. You better get out of my way. A huge part of why Jesus is killed is because we fundamentally disagree with him in our hearts on what the real problem is. Jesus is like, hey, the problem is your hearts. And you're like, no, it's my mortgage. He's like, no, the problem is your hearts. No, really, it's my health. No, the problem is your hearts. No, really, it's my relationships. I'm telling you the problem is your hearts. And we just consistently find other things that we're like, no, no, I hear you. That's nice. I'm glad for that little bonus feature. But really, I know myself better than you, and here's the real problem. We think our problem is contextual. We think it's external. And Jesus says it's internal. Now, uh, 
Satan leads Jesus into the wilderness, and he gives him three temptations. And we're going to look at the last one real quickly. He says, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. You know, please yourself. And Jesus is like, nope, not going to do it. You're God. Throw yourself off this building and prove it. Everyone will believe you. If you throw yourself off this building in front of everybody and you're safe, everyone will say, oh, that's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Jesus is like, nope, that's not how it's going to happen. And then finally we get to this one, which is really fascinating. Satan takes him. And Satan's running him through the Garden of Eden course, right? Satan's pretty good at this. He's been dominating people forever. People show up to earth. He's like, I know what to do to people. He takes Jesus to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says to Jesus, all these I'm going to give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Now, the big obvious question is, why is it Jesus, is Satan's, why is this Satan's to give away? And that tells us that that rebellion in the Old Testament was a big deal. Paul calls Satan the God of this world. He has a foot, not just a foothold, this is his party. He feels like he can just hand it off. Hey, Jesus, every other spiritual power, every other person who's come here, I've made this deal with them. I'll give you whatever you want. All you have to do is worship me. Everybody else here has done it. You just want more. But I'll make you the best. You can, you can run it all. And I used to read that as a kid and be like, why was Jesus tempted by that? You know, that's silly. Um, but Jesus came for this reason. He came to be the king of the earth, to reestablish the throne room of God. And Satan is saying, you know you can do it without the cross. You can do it without death. And implicit behind this test is, if you turn this down, we're killing you. Which he does. So Jesus turns that down. He says, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And I think, you know, I'm not saying we run around going to say, uh, you know what your problem is? You've actually been enslaved by the demonic. But I think if we go to an AA meeting, I think you'll see spiritual warfare there. I think you'll see that a lot of people have made that deal. That Satan has said, hey, you can be like God. You don't have to submit to anyone. And a lot of us have struggled and said yes. I think what the demonic looks like is a loss of agency. You know? A loss of sense that this is, this is mine and I can choose what I want to do. I know students who Googled the wrong thing when they were 12 and have wrestled with addictions to pornography for their whole lives. And uh, there's great hope for them, of course. But if they could go back, they're, they're like, I, I don't feel like I make decisions anymore. You know, I don't feel like I have agency anymore. And I'm suspicious to say that's because they're in this major battle. They need the king. And they need the king who wins right here. And this is what he does. He doesn't bow to Satan. And then when Satan kills him, that death turns out to be the greatest victory ever. When Satan does kill him, he comes back from the grave. And it's his way of saying, I am the supreme authority. And in Matthew 28, 18, after he's been resurrected, you know what he says? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's over. I came to those who were enslaved by these powers and you're free. It's done. And that's what the proclamation of the gospel is. The proclamation of the gospel is there's a new king. There's a new sheriff. We don't have to bow to these powers anymore. We don't have to make deals with them anymore. They don't win. They don't win. That's why the gospel 
is good news. Amen? That's why it's good news. Dark forces don't have ultimate dominion over us. Jesus has won. So, I mean, what's our life like now? What do, what do we do in light of all this? I mean, uh, I think I've quoted him a few times before. He's a good mentor, uh, pastor of mine, Sinclair Ferguson. But he used to describe the Christian life as like, if you look at World War II, many historians would say D-Day. At that point, the victory was, was technically won. Once D-Day was over, the Allies were going to win. But there were tons of battles to be fought after, Battle of the Bulge, all these kinds of things. And there was going to be a lot of costly fighting. And the enemy did not back down. It did not go quietly. D-Day has been won. Christ has won against the dark powers. Christ has won against Satan on the cross and in his resurrection. But there's fighting to be done. And that's you and that's me. It's worth reading the Great Commission in full here. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, baptizing them, which just happened here. Man, how much do you think Satan hates this service? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has already won this thing, and his command is, you know how you fight? You make disciples. You go out and you serve people in my name. That's how we're going to fight. We're not going to fight with swords. We're not going to do this. We're not going to play power influence games. We're not going to sacrifice who we are to gain influence. We're going to make disciples of all nations. He doesn't say we're going to get people to come and confess that Jesus is Lord and leave them alone. He says we're going to make disciples, right? He doesn't say I want that tribe to be bigger so I get the right kind of vote. He says we're going to make disciples. That's what it looks like. I'm pretty afraid that sometimes we in the church are just another tribe, that we just think the job is just kind of expanding our tribe and our influence. We're not just another tribe. There is a king who is returning, who has won the decisive battle. He's the one that we follow. C.S. Lewis put it like this, enemy-occupied territory, that's what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. When you go to church, you are really listening into the secret wireless from our friends. That's why the enemy is so anxious to prevent us from going. He does it by playing on our conceit and our laziness and our intellectual snobbery. So in the end, we, we, we face the true enemy. We understand that. We proclaim the victory of Jesus. And then we just worship the true king. So... I've saved it for the very end. I want to show you how Paul uses this. And I've been careful here. We did a little bit of hypotheticaling. That's not a word, but it should be. Uh, you can't tell people I made up a word in the pulpit. All right. Um, we did some hypothetical work, but what would be the wrong way to use kind of thinking about the spiritual realm is to really get lost in the, the weeds on it, I think. I think that's dangerous. I want to use it the way the Scriptures use it. So my question is, knowing this knowledge about the spiritual forces, about the battles going on. What does Paul do with it? And Paul does this. He says in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day 
and having done all, stand firm. What's he saying in conclusion? He's saying that all those things that we do, going to church, reading the scriptures, taking communion, being baptized, all of that, it's not like a checklist, right? It's not like, well, I joined this tribe and my membership says I do this and I get to keep being a member. We are engaged in serious, meaningful warfare. When you get on your knees and pray to the Most High, it has incredible meaning beyond just, well, I prayed today. We are tangling with the cosmic forces. When we pray for students, when we pray for our children, when we pray for our spouse, we are locked into that combat. And the way forward, the way to success there is union with Christ. And these things, these disciplines, are the things that draw us closer to Him. They're the strongest weapons we have. We draw near to God because there's a high-stakes war raging. And the enemy's not going to go down without a fight. So, the thing that's beautiful, of course, is this ends with the defeat of Satan in Revelation. The gospel wins. Jesus wins. And because of that, we can take courage and we can pray and we can fight. I wonder what it would have taken to beat the Astros in 2017. Uh, if you could go back in time and the Dodgers are facing the Astros and the signs are being stolen, what would it have taken for the Dodgers to beat them? I don't think the players on the field could have done it. I think you needed somebody from the outside, the commissioner of baseball, to step in and say, these guys are cheating and flip the tables, right? We can't do it on our own. And a lot of us, I think, are standing in there and firing pitches at the guy and he's hitting home runs and we're like, what is happening? We can't do it on our own. And you don't have to because Jesus has won the victory and he is with us always until the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you have won. I thank you that you've won, that it's over. That in you there are no good lost causes. Justice will reign. Mercy will flourish. We will be with you on new earth. We will experience your joy and your goodness. We will see how you lay out things and we'll say, hallelujah, that, exactly, that's right. Thank you, Father, that you came for us, that you did not abandon us, that your son came, that he won, that he is king. We trust you, Father. Help us to follow him. Help us to seek him. Help us to serve you. And in Jesus' name, amen.